Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for joining me today on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person to look at the stories and songs that have defined their life. This interview is being recorded remotely, but my guest and I are both broadcasting on unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today my guest is Peter Day. Peter specialises in both fine art and site-specific public art. He's created more than 200 works in Australia and overseas. And later in the show, I want to talk about what that work looks like and the roles that vision and visual arts have played in his life. We're also going to look at sonic works of art and the songs that have soundtracked the big moments for Peter. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Thank you, Mia. And I'd like to um, endorse that acknowledgement that we are on Aboriginal land. Thank you. So with this show, Peter, I don't always like to follow stories in a strict order of events, but I think your story has such an incredible chronology. It feels only fair to wind back to the very start where it all began. So we're starting with a big question, Peter. What is your earliest memory? I think my earliest memory was defacing a book that I I received as a Christmas present by drawing a horse and carriage on the flyleaf. I still have the book and I have made a subsequent painting from that. (laughs) I was four at the time. Tell me about when you first began entering your work in competitions. Well, I first did that at school and I wasn't doing art. And the art master saw my entry into the book week competition and then came to inquire as to who this kid was and why he was not doing art. So I promptly got liberated from Latin and moved into the art department. And two or three years later, I had an, a, a whole art room to myself. Wait, what, what do you mean by that? They gave you a studio at your primary school? Oh, sorry. This was the high school. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> at my high school, yeah. But that's still so impressive that they gave a student their own studio. What did it look like? It was room 19 (laughs) on the top floor of the new block. Um, Actually, I shared it with one other student who went on to become the head of uh, Sydney College of the Arts, but um, who's got a much more impressive curriculum vitae than I have. Oh, don't say that, But we won't talk about Ron too much. (laughs) But anyway, um, yeah got a whole room to ourselves to create work in so I used to go to school early come home late Uh, I knew all the cleaners they'd let me in and out whenever I wanted and sometimes was even at school on the weekend and went into every art competition I could find and luckily won quite a lot of them probably mainly not because I was any better than anybody else but I did bigger works And I think I won by size. Obviously, size matters. Size. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> How big are we talking? We're talking um, six by eight feet in those days. I used to do backdrops for discos and, and bars and things like that. And so like murals I, I just, almost. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed making and being physical about the, the work. Mm. And often they'd become three-dimensional, like... There was a whole lot of backs of chairs, school chairs, that were junked. So I put them all together and made a wavy surface. Um, concave, convex, concave, convex. Mm. And it was about, in those days, six feet by six feet and made a painting on this surface, use, wavy surface, using lots of wavy lines and pop images of people dancing and and bands playing, heavily influenced by music, very heavily influenced. Which is why you're on Out of the Box today. We love to talk about the way that music has played a role in your life. And, you know, I I suppose being in high school and spending so much time making art and winning so many prizes, it's obviously pretty prominent in your world, which would garner attention, one piece of attention coming from the Daily Telegraph. Peter, tell me that story. Well, I'd won quite a few exhibitions and competitions and somehow or other the Daily Telegraph got news of the the latest one, which was called, I think, the Goya Art Prize. And one evening, two people who looked like detectives uh, <laughs> arrived at the front door, which I answered, and they asked for Mr Day. So I called my father and they said, we understand that you've won all these art prizes. And he said, no, that's my son. And mm-hmm. they looked at me incredulously and said, you? <laughs> so anyway, my mother invited them in for a cup of tea and we talked and they took photos. And from then on, I became a media star. How old were you when that <laughs> happened? 15 or 16, I think, something like, I can't remember exactly. But I know um, I went out and bought a pair of Beetle boots with the prize money from the the art prize. That's incredible. It sounds like um, the storyline from, yeah, like like a movie, this child prodigy just making leaps and bounds in the art world. And we are talking about a really visual space right now. So when you turned 17 and your eyesight started to impact your life, it made a really big impact. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I was momentarily devastated because my eyesight deteriorated very rapidly and without going into all the the medical jargon of what happened, I couldn't see a lot and had to wear first glasses and then contact lenses to see anything. And for a short period of time, I was quite despondent until somebody told me about Beethoven who composed music while deaf. And I can't remember who that person was, but I'm very thankful because instantly I lost all depression and self-pity because if he could do it, so could I. It sounds like the perfect time to play a Beethoven song Peter, what have you chosen? One of the things that I'm constantly aspiring to is to be joyful. So I think Beethoven's last symphony, the Choral Symphony, has in it uh, 
a song called Ode to Joy. And we'll dive into it right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Ode to Joy by Beethoven, chosen by my guest on the show, Peter Day. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or the website, that was Beethoven. The song was called Ode to Joy, and the chooser of that track was my guest on the show today, Peter Day, who is a visual artist. Peter, I want to jump to the 1970s. You were in your 20s at the time. Let's paint a picture of what your life looked like during this period. First, can you tell me about the Kirk Gallery? Well, my life looked like almost never slept. I had the opportunity to restore and save from demolition an old church in Surrey Hills. The challenge I jumped at because I thought I could create an art gallery for artists that were halfway between nowhere and and the first rung of the ladder up to established galleries. And so that somewhere like people like me could show. So I began by renovating this old church, pulling plaster off walls, jacking up the floor, installing a bathroom, fixing the plumbing, all that sort of stuff. And a group of friends centred around the National Art School came and helped enormously. And I think after the first one or two small-scale exhibitions, we started running concerts on a Sunday night. Admission was a dollar. And that slowly grew um, over a, a, a period of years to actually having some status in the music industry. And occasionally record companies would ring up and say, we've got an artist from Adelaide, could you put them on so we see how they... Um, go with a live audience and also the place got known as a good venue to be a rehearsal space or a TV studio and then sometimes hosting film festivals and also doing TV shows. So there was a great variety of activity happening all the time interspersed with acting as a crash pad for musicians from interstate or homeless musicians. The place was buzzing 24 hours a day. And were you living there at the time? Yes, I was living in the loft. I was like the hunchback of the Kirk Gallery. I was going to say a church mouse, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's so incredible. I mean, in my research, I understood what the gallery was, but I didn't realise that it was such an all-encompassing space and it's so impressive that you played such a big role in reviving it that way as well. Was that something that you did fresh out of high school? I was fresh out of um, art school, basically. I'd done a diploma of industrial design and I was actually working for the government architect as an industrial designer while this was happening as well. 
and I lasted a year there because the the lure of the entertainment industry just was far too great. I thought I'd rather spend all my time doing this work rather than just night times. And I, I don't know if this is really diving fully fledged into the entertainment industry, but I do want to talk about some of the work you've done in radio. This isn't your first time behind the mic, Peter. Tell me about the role that you played in the development of Double J. Well, it's a very minor one, and it's one that was just being in the right place at the right time, because as the Kirk Gallery developed its reputation for exposing Australian music and especially acoustic singer-songwriters, a group of like-minded people, some of which worked for the ABC, and I remember Paul Gardner, who was editor of Rolling Stone, and Horan Wall and Walker, people who were the information agents, especially for the music industry, who coincidentally rented a room at the Kirk Gallery. We all got together to create a community radio station to promote Australian music. And we were going to use the, as a broadcast tower, the tower at the police barracks around the corner in Redfern. And so for a year we met and worked out everything that needed to be done. We were very serious about doing this and then I can't remember exactly which year but Gough Whitlam said to Talbot Duck, Duck Manton at the ABC, I think we need a youth radio station. And Talbot Duck Manton didn't like that idea at all and he gave two or three young ABC employees three months to get a radio station together, which of course is impossible, but all the work had actually been done uh, at this group we called N Plus One. And so therefore Double J was born out of the meetings at the Kirk Gallery. And we didn't have to worry about broadcasting from the police antenna or anything like that. They got all these offices and studios in Forbes Street. Consequently, I got to have a very little role sometimes on a Tuesday or a Thursday night at about two o'clock in the morning to have a play of some of my recordings of the Kirk Gallery artists. Oh, some of those artists that were doing their first live shows at your gallery... Some of them were almost everybody that you can think of. Richard Clapton had his first solo gig at the Kirk. What? Okay. <laughs> so, and actually I was supposed to do his record album, Prussian Blue, but Festival Records vetoed that mm. and they did it in-house. But John English lived around the corner and he became a, a good friend and rehearsed his band at the Kirk very often. Um, there were Jeannie Lewis, Margaret Road Knight, almost everybody in Australia had played there at some stage. J the great jazz musician, uh, guitarist, uh, George Goller, uh, Peter Boothman, Don Andrews. We, we had some international people as well, like Tiny Tim and um, John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. 
including John Luke Ponty. Oh, it was a whole lot of people. Isn't that incredible that you had all of those recordings ready to go when, when Double J came about? Yeah, well, some of them were um, only on cassette tape, but after a while, when we actually made a little bit of money, I was able to invest in a decent sort of reel-to-reel. So some of the concerts were actually recorded semi-professionally. So, And a lot of those are now in the Australian film, TV and sound archive in Canberra. Wow. So my friend Jackie Joy, or Jackie Joy alias Fat Jack, who was friend and technical advisor to everybody, and I used to do a little sometime slot in Double J at two o'clock in the morning, and we got to meet all sorts of interesting people. That's, Peter, I don't know, it's just, it's fascinating to me that you know, the role that you played in the art world took you to building this gallery, which ended up being such a big space for so many things, which then brought you to the airwaves and brings you back to the airwaves today. I want to talk about some of the highlights from your time at Double J, one with Lou Reed. Can you tell me that story? Well, Jack and I were in the studio doing our thing, playing Gunter Christman's deuce, harp and traffic noise augmented by everything else we could. We always had four cartridges going, two or three turntables and whatever else could make a sound and sampling and mixing and matching, moving in and out from all these different sounds. And there was a bit of a commotion in the studio next door and two or three of the upper echelons of Double J were trying to interview this person who wasn't really being very cooperative because he was too tired. But he did mention binaural and biphonic recording. So we stuck our head out and we saw it was Lou. And he was starting to talk about Street Hassle, which he'd just recorded in Berlin binaurally or biphonically. And we had a biphonic microphone in the studio, so which we called Harry the Head because it was a head shape with microphones where the ears would be. And this was the basis of my uh, binaural recording. So we put that on the floor in front of him and he immediately sparked up and said, oh, you know about biphonic recording, you know, and gave us all the technical details of how he did that in, for Street Hassle in Germany. So we got to record an, an interview with, with Lou about Street Hassle. So that's been one of my favourite albums ever since. I reckon we should play Street Hassle now. Peter, what do you reckon? Yeah, anything from that album. Well, let's dive into the title track, Street Hassle, by Lou Reed from the album Street Hassle, taking it back to 1978 on FBI Radio 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull, and artist Peter Day. I'm not being smart or trying to be cool in my part, and I'm not going to wear my heart on my sleeve. But you know, people get all emotional, and sometimes, man, they just don't act rationally, oh, they think they're just on TV. sha la la man. She just slip her way. It 
was Lou Reed on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Street Hustle, a cut from the album of the same name, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Peter Day. Peter, I want to talk about your move to France. What brought you there? Well, I won, a, I guess, an artist in residency at the Mikhail Caroli Art Foundation in the south of France, which is in, in a a little town called Vols, which is 16 kilometres north west of Nice. And it's always amused me that in those days, the Australia Council used to send broke artists to the most expensive place on the planet to do their work without a stipend. I think I might have got the airfare, but I can't remember exactly. But at least I got to stay there which was really one, if not the great experiences of my life. Peter, when we were preparing this episode, you talked about, you know, your mid-40s kind of as the time that you actually grew up. Um, can, you, can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I was lucky to have a very elongated adolescence. So when I met the woman who would become my wife in 1990, I probably started to grow up just a little bit but by the time we got married in 1996 I thought really I I better start really concentrating on growing up and I must say that uh, my wife Rena has been a great stabilizing influence on me. How did you meet Rena? Well I had a garden flat underneath the studio on my block of land here. And the girl who was inhabiting it prior to Rena met a TV producer and moved out. So I advertised that good things happen to girls who live at 89A (laughs) and in the garden flat. So, and Rena turned up on the doorstep, you know, from a little ad in the Herald that was about one inch by two (laughs) which her brother-in-law saw, and she was staying just over the hill from where I live, and she still wanted to be near her sister. So she was looking for something close. So I thought, oh, well, that's fair enough. And I thought she had a a good reason to come here rather than anybody else. And the rest is history. And then the other thing was that Rena's surname was the same as mine. It was meant to be. But she spelt it D-E-Y and I spelt mine D-A-Y. So if that's not an indication of future events, I don't know what is, but it took me a while to realise. <laughs> and in a couple of minutes, we will talk about future events unrelated to Rena, but back into the art world, Peter. First, you've chosen a song. What is it? After our marriage, we spent a lot of time in India and... I really like Indian music, but live Indian music is very hard to find in India. You have to be there in the right place at the right time, which is very rare. So one of the things that we've listened to a lot at home is Ravi Shankar. And I also very much like jazz. And one of the albums I really like is the album that Ravi Shankar did with Bud Shank, the flautist and Bimimbao player for the from the LA quartet and 
they provided an example of one of the earliest fusions of Western jazz and Eastern traditional music. Ravi Shankar and Bud Shank on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box with Mia Hull. I am joined by artist Peter Day. And throughout the show, Peter, we've been talking about art and music and the really big roles both of these things have played in your life. Interestingly, at the start of the show, we touched on very briefly your vision and how it started to deteriorate when you were 17. And we didn't really talk about it again since then, but you are a practicing artist. I want to know how your vision is now and what kind of role it plays in the way that you make art. Well, to be truthful, I'm supported by a raft of great Macquarie Street specialists who take a great deal of interest in me, and I'm very thankful to them. And... But the truth is that art happens in my head and increasingly less to do with what happens out of the end of my fingers or with eye-hand coordination. I can still do everything, no, most things that I want to do. I'm even allowed out in the street from time to time if I know where the pedestrian crossings are. And... Increasingly, things are getting better. Last year, I had two operations and 11 procedures, and my eyesight now is a lot better than it was prior to that. So, But also, I have friends who come and help me to do the delicate bits. And also, I have a great deal of support from the foundry that I use, and also the fabricators and engineers and industrial designers that I work with. So a small business like me, like an artist, and I think an artist is a small business, albeit a very different type of small business, especially in Australia, um, I've got a, a huge amount of people who support me. So therefore, my eyesight is, if it decreases further, is increasingly of less consequence because I can get help. So that's how it is at the moment. And plus, I paint a lot more freely than I used to. I don't bother with straight lines anymore. That's that's really interesting. You know, I, I guess it does point to what you were talking about before with Beethoven and, you know, having that impairment not impacting your practice very much or at all. I've introduced you as someone who works in the fine art space, but then also in the community space when it comes to art making. And I want to focus on the community space now. When did you find your calling for community engaged art, Peter? Well, it started off with mural painting. And I applied for a grant to paint a mural on the the front of the Kirk Gallery. But between applying and receiving, I lost the building. 
because I'd done too good a job in doing it up. And the <laughs> landlord lord thought, you beauty, I'll have that back. Thank you very much. So I got somebody else to take over the grant and painted a mural in Surrey Hills, auspiced by the local community group. And as an industrial design trained designer or artist, I understood the importance of research or researching the need or the want or the task of any particular design. Now, a mural is just another, even though it's art, is also a product and it has a function in the community. So therefore, I found out what that function ought to be according to the community. And I talked to people who used the park and I also talked to kids in the local schools and ran workshops. So that is how my introduction to community art started. But as I did more projects, I understood there were more structured technologies or philosophies about community art, which I then employed so that um, the ideas of the audience or the end user or the people who lived around where this art was going to be would have a greater say because I didn't live there so therefore I didn't feel it was my right to have too much input except to facilitate the making and facilitate the coordination of the research. And having my own artwork meant that I didn't have to enforce my ideas on the community. Do you mean by that having your own practice and making your own pay-to-day artwork and then, you know, the community work you're doing is a separate thing? Totally separate, whereby the ideas and aspirations of the community members took precedence. Does that mean that your artistic style or skills don't play a role in those murals at all? Not not at all, but minimally. And it's much more common for the things that I learn through the community art process to end up in my own personal work. Mm. So I'm a bit of a bower bird that way. I'm good at pinching things. Yeah. Because lots of people have great ideas. Yeah. And Always, if there's a problem, somebody will come up with a solution. It has never, ever failed me in 200-odd projects. Never failed me. In fact, there's a good music piece of music with Tom Waits about, I think, Jesus' blood never failed me or something like that that goes on and on <laughs> and on. But that process has never failed me. And just talking to people, asking them what they want, and then after you get past the rainbows and the ducks on the pond, start talking to them about their life and what is meaningful, what is happening in the local community, um, any of the issues, how their life is working out for them. Eventually, you come up with both a consensus of ideas as the basis of a work of art and also some other little outlying pieces that have to be plugged in because they're so unique or inventive or individual. So, yes, community art is a camel designed by a committee or a horse designed by a committee, but necessarily so. 
And I believe that with skillful um, stewardship, you can make an artwork of greater steam value and great aesthetic value and not just a, sort of a kid's mural on the mm. childcare centre where Saturday afternoon you let everybody out to paint what they wanted. Do you think it's just the aesthetic value that makes community-engaged art important or is there something more to it than that? Well, the important, really important part is the process. And it's that process of speaking with people and consulting them and empowering them so that they get to have a say in their environment. I once spoke to a whole lot of predominantly women in council-owned terrace houses in Surrey Hills about a mural, and almost every one of them said, why are you asking me? This is only a council house, you know. And that was really the point where I thought, wow, this is important stuff. Talking to people about their community and giving them the opportunity to have a voice. And a lot of those people said, kids in this community never get to see the bush. We think you should paint the bush. So that's, in fact, what we painted. Just before you mentioned that having your own practice outside of the community-engaged art meant that you weren't infusing Peter Day into these works and they could be community-focused. So let's talk about your own practice and the Peter Day side of your art making. Throughout the show, we've been talking about art, but we haven't really described what it looks like. So if someone is standing before a work that you've made, Peter, what what would they see? What, What about it makes it a work that's been done by you? Well, it varies every five to ten years quite radically. Most generally, it is abstract, landscapey things that generally hang on walls. Sometimes they refer to public art and sculpture in the landscape. Sometimes they're pure landscape. I used to do a lot of what I called block, dribble and wiggle, which is a pinch from a mural process that I developed so that kids could paint on a mural and do whatever they liked almost and still contribute to the aesthetics in a, in a very positive way. It's sort of like jazzy pointillism. So Surat invented this type of painting where a whole lot of dots of different colours joined together or in close proximity to each other made up a painting when you looked at it from a distance where rather than spotty pointillism, mine is wiggly pointillism, (laughs) which is much more kid-oriented and much more fun to do. So a mural in Nixon Street, Surrey Hills, is a bush scene with lots of blot, dribble and wiggle. So then I translated that into a lot of my own personal painting, which then gets talked about in terms of 
gestural abstraction or um, bokushu, which is a particular type of Japanese ink painting, which is very much about the mark making process. Um, and then slowly those marks have transitioned into crystalline type shapes which were born out of playing with Photoshop and printing or creating works in the computer using Photoshop and then printing those out, playing with them, getting a good result and then blowing those up into larger pictures, two or three metres. So we've gone from lot dribble and wiggle to crystals. And then now, because crystals embodied straight lines, I no longer do straight lines, so the crystals become smudges. You've really painted a picture there for me with your words, and I'm sure the pictures you paint with your hands are beautiful as well, Peter. Let's jump into a song now. What's the next one you've chosen? Well, if we're talking about painting in the studio, the Buddha Bar series of albums, of which I'm surprised to hear now that there's 20-something. I have, I think, the first five or six. I play those in the studio because they're great mixes and matches of lots of different world musics. And this started in a bar in Paris, and which was bar, restaurant, nightclub, quite a major operation. And I've always had the aspiration to go and visit it, but I haven't been there yet. But um, in some ways, it's also a bit like community art, where this music of the Buddha bar, which really is composed of lots of different influences, is like a mural painting or a sculpture that has the influence of lots of different stakeholders or community members. Well, we'll dive into the intro for Buddha Bar 3 right now on Out of the Box and FBI Radio. This song was chosen by my guest, the artist Peter Day. You'll sting to FBI. That was the intro to Buddha Bar 3. You heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by the artist Peter Day, who just spent a lot of time describing his practice and the different, mm, let's call them nuances that inform the shapes and pictures that you make in your art. And you talked about them changing all the time as well, Peter. I'm wondering what the future looks like and how you think they might change moving forward? Well, I think I get bored quickly. So once I've been there, done that, I look for something else or sometimes I'm forced to do something else. At the moment, I'm painting much more lyrical, seamless, abstracty landscapes that don't have terribly many internal edges but 
even though they probably aren't recognisable landscapes, they usually are based on a particular place and often an event at a particular time. But also I'm spending a lot of time making sculpture, both carving Hebel blocks and also having works cast in a foundry in bronze. And one of the things that I'm pursuing is the humble tin mug. I've had a lot of those cast in bronze and populating or becoming, when combined with other elements, pieces of sculpture in their own right. And there are certain close relatives who think that I'm cracked. <laughs> and who's going to buy that sort of comments? But it's not a thing that I get a choice in. If the idea comes, I have to do it, or otherwise I feel that the next idea won't come. And of course, once you do something, the idea evolves and moves on into somewhere else. So I keep hoping that these tin cups in bronze and sometimes in Corten steel uh, manifest something important. I reread Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and in a dream soon after I saw all these tin mugs joined together with chains. So, of course, I had to do that. And then the tin mug has been ubiquitous ever since. I've got them all over the house. So that's something else that's happening in the future. But in terms of my... That's in terms of my personal work. In terms of the public work, mm. we're doing... When I say we, the little company that we have here, working with developers on incorporating public art and, where possible, community engagement in large-scale housing developments. And that includes writing arts plans, which include histories of the area, as well as what the current issues or situation is in that area. Which So that relates back to the research in community art. And also... I firmly believe that community engagement is a very valuable design resource for not only the design of public art, but the design of public anything. So to that end, I'm hoping to use public art as an example of community engagement or as a successful example of community engagement and creating a program which will be called Strengthening Placemaking through Public Art and Community Engagement, uh, which will include a book, an exhibition, some online training for stakeholders in public art projects, and hopefully to take that program to regional New South Wales centres and launch them there, as well as four or five centres within the Sydney metropolitan area. And hopefully the end of next year will be the grand launch 
of the book and the exhibition at Parliament House in Macquarie Street. And by the way, Macquarie Street is one of my favourite places because I call it the Paris end of Sydney. Amazing. Well, you have so much coming up, Peter. I better not keep you for too long, but I will put a link up to your website on fbiradio.com. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I leave you? Well, thank you, Mia, for inviting me. Um, It's been lovely to review my history or have an excuse to review my history. (laughs) Um, I should be much more appreciative of the life that I've lived. (laughs) I've never heard that answer before. That's really beautiful. Um, what, what song would you like to end on, Peter? Well, one of the people who influenced me greatly because of his artistic integrity and just fantastic talent is Bob Hudson, who was a singer-songwriter, who wrote the famous Newcastle song, but he also wrote a very tender and insightful song about the girls of Newcastle called Girls in Our Town. I think that would be a a nice way to go out. We'll dive into that right now on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Bob Hudson. The song is called Girls in Our Town and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Peter Day, the artist whose website I'll pop up on the programs page on fbiradio.com if you did want to check out any of the projects he's just spoken about. While you're on the programs page, you can look at the full list of songs that Peter chose for the show or you can listen back if you like. You're also welcome to listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a big shout out to producer Mary, not only for preparing this episode, but for sitting down with Peter and walking him through the mechanics of recording this broadcast remotely. It can be a little bit finicky sometimes. So shout outs to you and shout outs to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. The girls in our town leave school at 15. Work at Calvin. Spend all their money on making the sea and plan on going to England. Girls in our town.